I already introduced Haley to you um, and her impressive background, but now I'll introduce two other folks coming on stage. So we have Professor Peter Dean, who's the director of our foreign policy defense program here at the at the U.S. Study Center. He was um, uh, UWA's first chair of defense studies and the inaugural director of the UWA Defense and Security Institute. He's a pro vice chancellor at UWA, where he received a vice chancellor's commendation for outstanding leadership. And he's held a number of senior roles at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and Strategic and Defense Studies Center. And he was most recently the co-lead of the 2023 Defense Strategic Review um, in, on the Secretariat, where he served as a senior advisor and principal author for the independent leads alongside um, Stephen Smith, as well as Sir Angus Houston. Next, we have Amer American uh, Zach Cooper. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studied uh, Asia, where he studies Asia, U.S. Asia strategy, um, and he's also a lecturer at Princeton University and a partner with Armitage International. He's previously on the staff of the Pentagon and the White House and uh, previously also at CSIS as well as uh, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And with that, my very non-expert um, uh, foreign policy and defense self will get off stage. <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you very much, Jared. Um, thanks, everyone. Haley and Zach, great to have you here. Um, you heard from Mike, obviously, this morning, where he talked about we're the US Study Center, but we like to be the US Study Center kind of brackets, AUKUS, Quad, G7, you, you name any kind of multilateral uh, grouping. So really, the, the allies and partners center in many respects, or allies and partners and friends. So, um, and as we know, those relationships are all bound together by people people contacts, which is really important. So I'm really pleased to be on a panel here with two of my great friends, um, Hayley Channer and Zach Cooper. Um, and more importantly, we're going to do some reflections on another one of these groupings, which is the Trilateral Security Dialogue. Because over the course of Monday and Tuesday, along with Brendan Taylor, who's out there in the audience, give us away, Brendan, uh, we were the game masters for a strategic simulation that took the TSD countries, took Japan, took the United States and Australia, and posed a series of problems and crises in the region to them to see how they would react as a grouping. So we wanted to take a little bit of time to sort of do some reflections on that, but also leading into the next panel on, on allies and partners, sort of look at this particular trilateral grouping, which hasn't probably got as, as much sort of uh, public commentary as the Quad and some others in recent times. Um, so on that, Hayley, did you want to maybe kick us off by, particularly from your economic security angle, which is a nice flow on from the, from the last panel, talking a little bit about that economic security cooperation across those three countries? Very happy to. So before I talk about their economic cooperation, I also wanted to just situate the trilateral in the broader uh, landscape of Australia's regional partnerships and all of these so-called mini-laterals. So Australia is a member of a number of groups in the Indo-Pacific. In fact, it's around uh, 20 groups that Australia belongs to, ranging from things like AUKUS, as well as the trilateral, but is also part of the five power defense arrangements. Obviously, it's part of Five Eyes. Those are two of the oldest groups, um, but the trilateral security dialogue started in 2002. So it's uh, two decades old. And since then, Australia has joined another, uh, a number of other trilateral groups, whether that's Australia, India, India, Japan, um, Australia, India, France. There's also um, Australia, Indonesia, Timor Leste. So Australia is joining all of these little minilateral groupings because it is wanting to develop more friendships in the Indo-Pacific because of the tougher strategic circumstances we face. And there is no such thing as uh, an Asian NATO. So we're looking for security partnerships uh, as well as increasingly economic cooperation. 
So while Zach and uh, Pete will talk a lot about the security dimension, I wanted to talk about the economics of their relationship and the sort of flagship uh, project of Australia, the US and Japan has been a trilateral infrastructure partnership in the Indo-Pacific. They announced it in 2018 and some US administration uh, officials started referring to the Trilateral Infrastructure Partnership as an alternate to China's Belt and Road. And I think in hindsight, that was a mistake. Um, a lot of our governments are great at announcements, uh, but we're less good at implementation because the actual doing part is quite hard uh, and it's very expensive. So, for example, uh, China's Belt and Road celebrated its 10-year anniversary this year. Uh, there are reports from uh, Chinese-affiliated groups that China has spent $1 trillion on infrastructure in the world. Um, even if it hasn't spent that much, we know that it spent around $67 billion on infrastructure just last year. So, I mean, coming out of COVID, it's still spending billions and billions. So what is the trilateral answer to all of that spending? Well, unfortunately, it hasn't been as grand as a trillion dollars. Uh, it's been a couple of hundred million. And they've all gone to the things that Michaela from Google was just talking about, which is undersea fiber optic cables. These communication cables that um, sort of cobweb underneath the, the seas of the world and connect all of us, about 95% of all global communications, all your Netflix shows, they come through on these undersea cables. And so what the trilateral partnership has done is a Palau spur cable, an East Micronesia cable, and uh, just last week, or very recently, they announced, uh, yeah, last week, a South Pacific Connect initiative with the United States, and that's being delivered by Google, this $65 million project. Um, but a lot have been announced. Um, they haven't all been finished, and Australia, the US, and Japan really do struggle to align all of their different government agencies to deliver physical infrastructure for countries. Because you can imagine that sometimes you get a large bureaucracy, uh, like in the United States, you have about seven different government agencies in the US responsible for delivering infrastructure. And what I hear a lot from uh, countries in the Pacific and countries elsewhere is that they really wish uh, that government agencies would talk to one another before they came and tried to build something in that country. So, it's been a big problem in terms of not only getting enough money to be a credible alternative to what China can offer, um, because China was really exporting its excess construct construction capacity. Uh, we've all seen the Chinese ghost cities where there's these massive buildings that no one's living in and they're actually now being uh, demolished because they're you know, creating havoc in the uh, pri uh, property sector in China. Um, but we were really not playing to our strengths. Uh, but that hasn't actually solved the problem of how do you present a viable economic alternative um, to attract countries? Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of work still, still to be done in this space. Um, but where we are working really well and much stronger and kind of um, running away ahead of ourselves is in the security space. And I think that's something that we should be take you know, comfort in. So uh, I'll put you on the spot here, Hayley. Uh, speaking of which in the military cooperation, I know you worked when you were in government on the reciprocal assets agreement between Japan and Australia. Um, it was a long time, it was like a long, slow, steady boil, boil to get there, but we are there. What do you think that, from a bilateral point, that's so significant that, you know, as a part of this sort of uh, trilateral grouping now? Yeah. 
So for anyone who doesn't know, um, the Australia-Japan Reciprocal Access Agreement is like a status of forces agreement, but because of all the stigma around the US status of forces agreement that Japan has with the US, we couldn't call it that. <laughs> we had to do another rebranding of it. So we call it the RAA. Um, and yes, it was a, about an eight year process of negotiating this because what this agreement allows us to do is Australian forces can go and train in Japan and vice versa, and it makes it easier for us. And you wouldn't actually believe the amount of um, legal issues involved in a status of forces agreement, especially for a country like Japan and Australia, because there's different laws in both of those countries. And Japan has a pacifist constitution, which prevents it from doing a lot of things that a quote unquote normal country can do. Um, and that required a lot of negotiation by dedicated officials. But now that we actually have an RIA with Japan, um, Japan is negotiating the similar agreements with other countries because it knows that it is in a tougher environment and it needs to transition to a different posture now um, for the realities it faces. So it's a nice uh, segue onto the, the broader security stuff. Zach, obviously you've come to us from Washington, but I know you've come to us from Washington via Tokyo, via Washington, back to Sydney. Um, uh, family is important, so I know why you went back even for a few days. Um, but can you give us a sense of, you know, obviously coming from Washington, but having just spent time in Tokyo and now being here in Sydney, um, why is, you know, we're hearing more and more talk around this trilateral security dialogue as becoming more significant in the Indo-Pacific? Well, absolutely. And first, thank you, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. Any excuse to get outside of Washington, D.C. is always a good thing. Um, and I don't just mean that because some of us Americans are looking for employment opportunities for January 2025. <laughs> um, but it's, it's really great to be here and such a fantastic group in the room. Uh, so I think when you look at the trilateral uh, arrangement, what's so remarkable is that, you know, if you look at this polling data, the views on China are so similar. And this wasn't the case just five or 10 years ago, right? This is really, this alignment has happened remarkably quickly. Um, you know, the Chinese would blame the United States. I, I think actually we don't get much of the credit. I think most of the credit goes to Beijing. Um, but I think we know just from academic work, right, that the reason the alliances usually get formed, it's a shared threat. But the next step, how you actually make an alliance real, means you have to have a shared vision and then shared execution. And this for the United States is, I think, where Japan and Australia are so critical. There are probably not two countries in all of the rest of the world that have a shared focus on the Indo-Pacific in the same way the United States does with such similar interests. So, you know, Tony Blinken has called the G7 sort of the global steering committee of the world's advanced industrial democracies. I think if the U.S. has a steering committee in the Indo-Pacific, it's with Tokyo and Canberra. And that, for me, is why this has become absolutely critical. Now, let me just say one other thing, which is I, I think from the perspective of Australians and probably Japanese as well, there's, there's another quiet motivation, which we tend not to say out loud, which is to try and lock the United States in. Yeah. Right. I think this is true of a lot of the minilaterals that are arising. You know, there is a fear about what the United States is going to look like over the next few years. And these minilaterals are one way to try and tie the United States into the region more firmly. Um, now, that's not infallible, but, but I think it's a smart rationale. 
Yeah, so one of the interesting reflections I would have is we've had a series, and I'm going a bit to the chicken or the egg here, right? So you've talked about the, the public opinion polling, and we've seen that um, come through. There's particularly high opinion uh, in our public opinion polling about alignment between Australians interested in a further relationship with Japan. But over the last 12 months, there's been a set of significant strategic documents in all three countries. So we've had the US national security strategy and national defence strategy, the Japanese national security and national defence strategy and the Australian DSR all appear. And when you look across all those three um, those documents, they're all focused on the Indo-Pacific as the primary theatre. They're all focused on deterrence and deterrence by denial as a principal driving strategy and of course the US approach of integrated deterrence. This, I think, is, is driven by those alignments you're talking about, Zach, but how significant do you really think it is that you actually have three countries who've come up with sovereign defence and national security strategies that have basically come to very similar conclusions and very similar strategic approaches that are driving their engagement with the region? I think it's significant, but I think the drivers are, are very fundamental drivers, right? So um, if you step back and you think about the two big changes that are happening in the world uh, from the defense perspective, one is certainly the relative rise of China over the last couple of decades. That's fundamentally shifted the dynamics in the Indo-Pacific. I think the other aspect, which was sort of touched on in the last couple of panels, is what's happening on the defense technology side. And in my view, what's, what's happened is that denial has become easier than control. It's become less costly. And therefore, what we're seeing is a lot of countries that don't need to have a significant power projection relying more on denial capabilities. Now, of course, this presents a lot of opportunities if you're Japan, if you're Australia, to use these sorts of denial capabilities very effectively to prevent China from approaching your, your shores. It's a much more difficult question for the United States, right? We still have to project power. And so I think you're seeing the United States struggle a little bit more with these choices because actually the price of power projection has gone up, which in some ways is great for the United States, right? We're a status quo power. We don't want fundamental changes in the world order. So if we can maintain the existing order at a cheaper cost, all the better. But the way the United States has done this for decades is by projecting power. And as the price of projecting power goes up, our strategy has to adjust a little bit. And I think in many ways that means that Japan and Australia are actually ahead of us in some sort of defense capability areas, as many folks in the room know. So going to push you a bit further on one other area of those strategy documents. So the, the DSR came out and said very, very directly that the era of US hegemony in, in the region or being the undisputed leading power in the region is over and we're in a multipolar region. The Japanese document in different language basically indicated the same thing. The US NSS and NDS didn't obviously go in that direction with that type of blunt language, but do you think um, integrated deterrence, which is a fundamental strategic approach in those documents that is about empowering allies and partners, and you layer something like AUKUS on the sharing of you know, the most sensitive technology from the US Navy that it has, is that a recognition not just of the changing nature of the, of the, of the region, but the changing nature of US power within that system? 
Absolutely. You know, the United States needs its allies and partners more than we have, at least, you know, while I've been doing national security work. Um, and so I think we have to be much more reliant on our friends than we have previously. I will say, I, I think we're not moving as fast as we need to be in this respect, right? And you can see this with some of the challenges we're having with uh, supplying Ukraine, right? That we just don't have the industrial capacity that we should have in some areas. And so there's certainly areas like guided weapons where hopefully some of our friends are gonna be able to step up and, and provide additional capacity. Um, but I don't think we're nearly far enough along in this area as, as we should be. And let's be clear, some of this is because of how the United States operates, right? For a very long time, if you were an American uh, company, your big seller is to the American government. And so your incentives to work with smaller countries that have smaller defense budgets have, have not been as great. And this is, gonna this is going to require a real change in mindset, right? And I think as we've seen with Australia, it requires a presidential level initiative in AUKUS to try and push this forward. If we don't do that, we get what I think we've had with Japan, which is we actually don't have any major co-development program with Japan at all on the defense side. There, there's some small things, there's some areas where, of, of course, we've got things like F-35, but we don't have a major co-development program with Japan, which is just shocking given the close cooperation between our two countries. So my view is it's gotta come from the political level. If if we let this happen you know, lower down in, in the bureaucracy, we just won't have enough uh, political uh, push to get things across the line. Um, so Haley, uh, during our strategic simulation, and I will say it was a strategic simulation, not a war game. We, we messed with our teams, we hope, well, I, I thought I certainly had fun messing with the teams, players. <laughs> but with the phrases I said to them, ah, they didn't know this at the time after the end of it when we give them the debrief of, we went for all measures short of war. So we played a lot in the economic security space. We really hammered them with both carrots and sticks um, in terms of economic security. Um, so for Australia, Japan and the United States, uh, as we've heard, are coordinating more militarily. We've got an alignment from strategic documents. We're viewing the region the same. We're starting, we've got alignment around deterrence and deterrence by denial as a fundamental unifying element. Are we and can we coordinate uh, and respond to economic coercion? And if so, how, how do we do that? Yeah. So, I mean, what happened over the last couple of days uh, shows us in a sense how it would work in real life where you have lots of different um, actors work talking to one another and wanting different things and having different economies and having different vulnerabilities in their economies. So one of the big uh, realizations, I think, especially for Americans is just how dependent Australia is on trade with China. And I don't think that that is appreciated or understood um, deeply in Washington, that we really need China. Um, and so it reveals sore points and it reveals, um, as well as that, it reveals where we can work together. So one of the key areas we're trying to work together is obviously critical minerals. Australia has a lot of them. Um, the US and other countries can help us process them. Uh, so there is a potential uh, vector where we could have 
joint industrial policy in specific niche areas to do with critical minerals. We could help each other out by investing in certain places and creating the supply chains that we really need and reducing our dependence on the Chinese dominated supply chains that it could cut off. And a good example of this is um, back in 2010, many people know that Japan was impacted by Chinese coercion when there was uh, an incident around the disputed Senkaku, Diaoyu Islands. China decided to cut off uh, trade in raw materials uh, with with Japan. And so China has shown its willingness to cut off something that's a critical mineral for Japan. And it's also done that with a, a like large number of other countries where it's had political disputes, Australia being one of them. But the tough point is that when Australia came under Chinese uh, economic coercion after our decision to lock Huawei out of our 5G network, after our decision to uh, call for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID, uh, that really did not go down well. Uh, China decided to put all of these sort of uh, tariffs and other barriers on Australian trade. And it wasn't our close, it wasn't all of our close um, partners or our US ally that was buying these goods. Um, in fact, a lot of Californian wine producers were really happy that they could sell more wine overseas. Um, but Australia was able to, you know, sell to other countries. Um, we sold our coal to Japan, South Korea and India, so obviously very close partners. But we also sold um, some of this stuff to Saudi Arabia, Southeast Asia, um, Bangladesh and European countries. So there was no solidarity, um, even if there was kind sentiments and platitudes uh, that they were really there with us. They weren't really there with us. And so this does reveal this tension of how practical is it for us to actually um, help each other out when we're being coerced by a more powerful uh, economy? than ours. And so there's all these suggestions. Um, some of them have kind of been greeted with crickets. So, you know, people have been saying, like a former uh, Secretary General of NATO has suggested, what about an Article 5 for collective self-defense to economic coercion? Uh, and my question to that is, um, well, at what threshold would you judge that that was economic coercion? What supply chains would you secure? Which countries would be a part of that mechanism? And um, you know, how would you punish China? What would you do? So there's so many unanswered questions, but we are all collectively trying to figure this out together. So it's not just that suggestion for an, an Article 5. Um, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, it opened we could do something, but the, the point I made earlier about, you know, Russia's the reason we're all running towards this clean energy transition now. Um, China will be what leads us towards uh, an anti-coercion mechanism. So we're kind of waiting to see, you know, what lessons did China learn from what it did to Australia in the last couple of years? And sometimes Chinese economic coercion works. Uh, it worked in South Korea. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work and it kind of embarrasses China. So I really hope uh, that we can actually encourage China to do the right thing, even for its own good. Can I just yeah. add on that real quick? So uh, I think Haley's exactly right that sometimes Chinese economic coercion works in the short term, right? And South Korea is a great example. Um, it managed to shift South Korean policy over, um, you know, basically six or nine months. But the backlash in South Korea was remarkable. 
right? So the, the South Korea transformation that we've seen in the last year and, and change, that wouldn't have been possible without China's complete overstepping on the economic side. And so I, I think China is sometimes making these very effective economic coercive campaigns in the short term, but the long-term damage has been tremendous for Beijing. I, I don't think Beijing fully understands that somehow. After you know watching this happen with Japan, right, and Korea, Taiwan, uh, Australia, you know, uh, India, on down the line, even the Europeans have faced this. Um, I think what's most important in response is that we can show solidarity, right? And so the fact that you know Australians were frustrated because American winemakers were benefiting from Chinese tariffs on wine, that that is a terrible sign from an alliance perspective. So I, I think part of this is actually messaging to our allies and partners that we've got your back. Now, is it going to make up for all of the lost sales in China in most of these cases? No. But I think the political message is also really important. So um, on the on the TSD and the strategic alignment, Zach, and I, and I think we should jump in here first, right? So next panel is going to have your former boss and my current boss on the panel, the guy who was actually in the room when the first meeting of the TSD happened. So he's, I'm sure Michael have a view on where the TSD should go next, but I think first movers are always, are always winners. So if we've got such strategic alignment, we're starting to move in these directions, as Haley said, and there's opportunities there on the economic security front. And Jared said this morning, the polling's talking about this shared view. But as John just said in the last panel, and I'm going to use this line a lot, we've got to stop milling around our own strategies and actually get on and do something together. So what's, you know, if, if you've got one big area for the TSD to stop milling around individually and come together and get on and do something, what, what would you be your, your key area to sort of operationalise that coalescence of strategy that we're seeing? I'm going to make people uncomfortable. Um... So look, you know, if you look at this polling data, people are pretty worried about a conflict involving China. And, and you know, we've got Phil Davidson here, the author of the Davidson window, right? Um, so if you, whether you think 2027 is the year or not, I think the, the point is exactly right that we have to move fast. And my view is we have moved quite quickly in our shared view of the threat from China but we probably haven't moved enough in understanding how we would operate if there was an actual contingency. I think this is true, actually, of our bilateral alliances, uh, you know, US-Japan, US-Australia, but also in a trilateral context. Um, I'm not suggesting an Asian NATO. I think that's never going to happen. Uh, we're going to have different command structures, but I don't think we know yet exactly how we would operate if there was a serious contingency. And I think we have to have a much clearer understanding because the last thing you want to do is be trying to build that on the fly. So um, these are really tough conversations to have. There are going to be legal challenges in Japan. There are going to be political challenges in all three countries. But I think we have to start working through, if there was a serious Taiwan contingency, how would we actually cooperate? Where would that happen? Uh, who would be in the lead in certain scenarios? And I, I think we've done a bit of that work, but I don't think we're moving fast enough. 
Yeah, look, and, and I think to add into that, I agree with you on that. There's two key areas in my mind where we've got to focus around this. What are the C2 arrangements going to be? So I'm sure we'll talk about this. Uh, I'm looking over at you, boss, about the next panel, about um, particularly with Japan, with their permanent joint headquarters. How does that then interrelate to the, the, the multitude of headquarters the United States has in the region and in Japan? How does that integrate in with our Joint Operations Command here in Australia? But the, the one thing I'll point out is that that alignment of deterrence is really, really important. That gives us a strategic alignment. But we ran a, a, a Track 1.5 deterrence dialogue between for the, with the USSC in Washington, D.C. earlier this year. And there was an enormous amount of, of, of agreement. Mara Carlin was there talking about stuff. The Australians from the embassy were there talking. And we were all like, you know, almost patting each other on the back of how close it was. We were all commenting how great it was that Japanese would agree. And then we actually started to talk about what do we mean by deterrence and how we understood deterrence and how we're going to operate, operationalize deterrence. And you just saw the cracks starting to open up. <laughs> You just sort of started to see the Australians talking about, oh, we want to be shaping around this, we want to focus on this, and the Americans, well, it's about a conflict against in, over Taiwan, right? And you started to see these gaps about how you would get at specific problems and specific issues. So we need to have a much greater, I think, deeper conversation around how we do deterrence politically as well as militarily um, in the region um, and, and working on those C2 structures to make that coordination and planning happen. Now, we've only got a short amount of time left. Um, as I said, we conducted this strategic simulation over Monday and Tuesday um, with pretty much all of our international uh, guests that we, we, we've had here and a few more Australians that we brought in. And uh, largely people are very experienced in working either on their National Security Council in the room when, when crises and other things had happened. Um, we got to sit in the control cell. We got to play around with the, uh, with the players and the moves. Can I just get you guys to reflect on what was sort of a, a, a takeaway that you had from that experience of seeing these three countries operate together trilaterally? And was there anything that sort of surprised you or you thought surprised the teams? Hayley. I was surprised that um, <laughs> we saw uh, a couple of the teams say that uh, they wanted to threaten sanctions. <laughs> as if China didn't know that sanctions could be applied, um, as, if, as if the threat of sanctions would make China blink. And that surprised me because um, it, what it actually told me is that we are not sure what our economic mechanisms against China will do to us. Um, we do not know what the implications will be and we don't want to hurt ourselves when we sanction China. Um, but the fact that uh, we don't know what will happen is concerning because then we've got no stick, uh, an economic stick to, to wield. And so I think um, understanding, you know, it's going to be very different to the Russia case uh, where sanctions were just piled on Russia. It is a different ball game with China and uh, it's not like the Cold War. So that, that's what surprised me the most. Well, I think on that point, it, it shows that integrated deterrence may not be the most applicable uh, concept when we talk about China, right? So, you know, when we talk about integrated deterrence in the U.S., we often mean using economic tools to deter military aggression. It didn't work with Russia. I don't think that China would be more likely to adjust its behavior given American economic threats, even with a variety of allies, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't have an integrated deterrence approach, but just means maybe integrated deterrence 
is sort of secondary to direct deterrence, right? The ability to actually demonstrate that we can ensure that they fail in their military objectives. So that's one takeaway for me. The, the other quick one would be, I was shocked at the degree of overlap in the way that all three countries looked at the challenges that we face now. And as you know, I, you know, I've been doing simulations in Asia for quite a while, and including with the US Studies Center for six or seven years. And I've never seen that kind of overlap between Japan and the United States and Australia before, not even close. So I think the way we see the region has really uh, shifted and come much closer to one another. Doesn't mean that we're exactly on the same page on everything, but that really surprised me. Yeah, and, and to finish it off, I'd say what flows out of that, I, w I was surprised by that and kind of not surprised at the same time. So during my time with the DSR, we went to Washington and I was sort of, the, the level of interest in Australia in the United States had been unprecedented. I lived over there when, when Kim Beasley was ambassador and Kim and I caught up a number of times. There was a growing interest in Australia. I've been to the US almost every year for the last 20 years. I was just blown away by how much direct engagement there was when we did there. And then Mike and myself, Shizuka and Tom Corbin went up to Japan earlier this year. And that was my seventh trip to Japan, and I've never seen so much interest in Australia from, from the Japanese and the level of, in, of engagement. So on one level, I wasn't surprised, but actually coming together in the game with these three teams who didn't know the scenario in advance, they were just seeing it each time that it rolled back, and we were watching them, like Big Brother, right, in their teams working through their problem sets and looking them set objectives that were almost identical, independent of each other before we allowed them to, to talk to each other. All right. Thank you so much for, for your time. We're going to have afternoon tea break now and we're going to come back and, uh, and then Mike's going to chair a panel where we delve even deeper into these uh, alliance networks in the region. Thank you very much. Okay.